Hello, and welcome to the podcast series Breaking and Entering. My name is Victoire Barbambiron. I am a reporter at Citywide Selector and the host of Breaking and Entering. In this podcast, we profile outstanding asset managers who have had an intriguing career path. They have either left the industry to launch a food business or tech company, or they have conversely entered the industry from a radically different sector. This is a case of Randall Dishman, who is currently serving as a senior portfolio manager at Invesco in the United States. Randy has also been triple rated by CityWire since April 2020. Yet, he has not spent all of his career in finance. Prior to becoming an analyst about 20 years ago, he was an engineer. And before that, he even was a professional musician. Today, we chat about how banjo playing can help with portfolio construction and how a hands-on engineer job has forged Randy's golden rules when it comes to allocating assets. Randy, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Pleased to be here. You have quite an intriguing profile. And I mean this from a career vantage point, since you've held various positions across different industries, namely asset management and engineering and music. But I also mean this from a very tangible and concrete point of view. I'm referring here to your LinkedIn profile picture. And you probably know where I'm going with this, but on LinkedIn, (laughs) (laughs) most asset managers usually pose with a dark suit, with sometimes a smile on their faces, and that's it. But you, not only are smiling, but you are also carrying a banjo. Is it a five-strings banjo? It is a five-string banjo, and and I'm smiling because I have the banjo in my hand. Uh, It's hard not to smile when I have a banjo in my hand. How long have you been playing the banjo for? Uh, Since I was 13 years old. But you were professionally playing at some point, right? I was playing uh, for money from the age of about 16 on. And, you know, because of where I was and because of what was around me, uh, I considered it a very viable career option. You know, I grew up without a lot of visible opportunity around me and, and not a whole lot of guidance. There was no one around me that had gone to college and there was no money uh, to go to college, even if I had uh, known that I could go. And so I was a good banjo player and there were money-making opportunities. I was playing in a band. I was playing, uh, doing uh, various gigs around my hometown and could make money at it. And so, you know, it, it was certainly right up there on par with the idea of going to college or doing, you know, 20 other things. I didn't know what was possible. And at the time, I still didn't really know what was available to someone like me. And then from banjo playing um, as a young adult in North Carolina, you went on to become an environmental engineer in the 1990s. So how does this work? Because I know, I think you were great in maths at school, but still, how come you left a creative environment for engineering, which sounds, maybe it's not, but it sounds a bit more tedious? Well, no, I think that's a good word for it. Um, you know, so in school, I was really good at everything. I, I wrote poetry. I was a good writer. 
but I was also good at math and science. And one of the things that happens to people that are good at math and science is that they get sort of pushed into the, the math and science fields. Uh, no one ever stopped to ask me if I wanted to be an engineer. It was, hey, you should go be an engineer. And so as I started to look around me and realized that music is not a sure thing. And I was, you know, when you grow up and there's not a lot of money uh, in the house, money becomes a primary concern. And so I needed to be economically viable quickly after college if I was going to go. And music was a tough career. I saw a lot of people that were as good and that played on my confidence a bit. And so I decided to go to college in engineering. And the engineering work in school was not that difficult. And so I thought this is going to be great. And then I get out into the real world as an engineer and realize very quickly, uh, this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. Now, time to figure out what that is. What does the role of an environmental engineer entail pragmatically? I didn't start as an environmental engineer. I started as a structural engineer, which is even more tedious than you might imagine. Most of the interesting problems had been solved long before I showed up. Uh, and so I went back to school for a master's degree. Uh, I had encountered environmental problems many times doing structural work. And I thought it was more interesting than structural work. And so I went back to Johns Hopkins to get a master's degree in environmental engineering. And so the role I played was uh, overseeing environmental cleanups and And that was a much more interesting problem than designing structures, most of which had been, again, designed long before I showed up and required very little creativity. And so I would be the owner's representative or, you know, someone would have an environmental problem. I uh, contaminated groundwater, contaminated soil, uh, asbestos and things like that. And it, that took a much higher degree of creativity to find a solution that was viable. And, and I loved it for a number of years until I started to get bored again. <laughs> right. And then when you started to get bored again, about a decade, I think, in, um, you decided to jump to portfolio management. I decided to, what, what I decided was on the advice of a friend, actually, which I've, I've very rarely taken the advice of, uh, of someone else. I've always looked to myself for answers, but I had a friend who I trusted and he said, look, you still don't have any idea what's possible for you. You still don't have any idea what's available to you. You should go to business school. That will expose you to a whole different set of opportunities. And so I took him at his word and I went back to business school. Uh, and I, at this point, I was already in my 30s. And so feeling kind of late in the game to be going to business school. But, you know, I, when, when you grow up again without a lot of guidance around you, one of the hardest things to do is just figure out what the world has to offer. What can I be? What's possible? And so business school was a catalyst for me to really know what the world had available. And I went to work for one of the large management consultants 
and that exposed me to a lot of things. And ultimately, it exposed me to asset management. And Openima funds. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was very fortunate at Oppenheimer Funds to wind up in a group of people that were creative in the way they thought and in the way they dealt with people. And so, you know, lots of times people in finance view finance as a, as a reducing exercise, a, a non-creative mathematical exercise. And I fell into a group of people that viewed it more as a creative, expansive exercise. And that, that was perfectly in line with my personality and the way my thought process works, which was just, just really lucky. And so they were able to help me develop into uh, a fund manager. And, and I really owe them a debt of gratitude that I think I'll never be able to repay. Mm or maybe inspiring others um, could be a way to do that. But so I should recall for our listeners that you, you've you spent now almost 20 years at um, Openima Funds, which Invesco acquired last year. And you are currently managing the Invesco Global Focus Equity Fund that you launched in 2007, if I'm correct. And you took on yes. the management of the Invesco Global Focus Fund this year. Um, so in addition to being in an environment that um, enabled you to be creative, um, what would you say that you brought to asset management from engineering? You know, one of the things I liked going, going back a step, one of the things I liked about music was it was total freedom. There, there were no rules. And, and what I did made people happy. Uh, you could see it on their faces immediately. One of the things that uh, just sort of made me feel constrained about engineering was it was all rules. But uh, the key thing I learned in engineering and, and what you do as an engineer is you go into dozens, if not hundreds of businesses over a long career and you solve real world problems and you learn about real business. Uh, and because I was, I was good at it, I got promoted uh, quite early in my career, and I learned early on about accounting practices, not the ones you read about in the books, but the ones that you implement in the real world. And so from engineering, you know, I came to Oppenheimer Funds knowing real business from the inside, knowing real business problems, again, having solved many of them, and knowing how companies ran their profit and loss statements. Um, it, it turned out I didn't appreciate what I knew until I was a few years in. And then I realized most people in finance have been in finance their whole life. And so they tend to look at each business as a reduction of numbers. And I was able to see further into real businesses than I think the average person in finance, which turned out again to be an advantage right and would you be able to share what are the maybe the top aspects that matter when investing in a business whether we're in a recession or a bull market or yeah sure i again very lucky um you know the the people that uh, that were training me and indoctrinating me did not want 
to recreate me in their image. They wanted me to become, I, I remember very clearly uh, the guy that hired me, my, my father in this business, if you will, he said to me, look, there's a portfolio manager inside of you. Our job over the next 10 years is to figure out what that portfolio manager is and get that portfolio manager out. And you know that I didn't understand what he was saying at the time, but there really is a portfolio manager inside people. You know things that other people don't know. You see things that other people don't see. And so, you know, the things that I've been able to do well with, I recognized very early on that you don't need to know every little detail about a business, but you do need to know those things that matter to the success of that business. And so I narrowed down the list of what matters as an investor uh, before I ever launched this fund. And, you know, this is what I've, this has been the basis of my philosophy for 15 years. Three questions. One is, you know, is this business worth owning ever? Not every business is advantaged. You've got to find those businesses that have advantages. And those are the only ones that are worth owning. Mm -hmm. Two, at what price? I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. When you mean an, um, advantages, um, d does this mean, concretely, does this mean a, a business that earns more than it costs or is there, are there other criteria? Well, it, advantage, you know, so part of the exercise is understanding the nature of advantage. Uh, you know, advantage to, to matter to an investor has to be durable. It's got to last more than a year. So you'll, you'll read a lot of times about a company that will win a socket for a chip in Apple's new iPhone. And, and those new iPhones last about 18 months. And so for 18 months, that company will do well. And then if they don't win the next socket in that cell phone, then their business goes away. That's not really an advantage. An advantage is something more like Amazon. It has spent 20 years building something, building it the right way in a very specific way to handle volume and to be efficient on the cost front. That's an advantage. They have a know-how in logistics that they've been developing for 25 years, really. And, and no one else can compete with that at this point. Um, the way they're organized, the systems they have, the way they looked at the logistics was clearly an advantage. It allowed them to scale where others tried and failed. And so one of the key things to understanding what's worth owning is knowing what advantage looks like. It's usually the result of R&D spend, you know, how you have invested in equipment, what, what have you developed in terms of systems. So knowing what advantage looks like is critical. You know, also, th there are no exceptions to this. If, if you don't earn more than your cost of capital, you're not, a, you're not an advantaged business. Advantaged businesses earn more than their cost of capital. They generate enough cash to fund their own growth. They don't have to run to Wall Street to borrow money to fund growth programs. And so, again, part of knowing what's worth owning is just understanding what advantage looks like in terms of a business. So that was the first, maybe the first aspect, the first um, 
threefold rule? Yes. And that one, you know, that one, when, when I'm out in the world visiting companies, if I'm visiting a company that I have not met before, which happens now, you know, 20 years into a career is maybe 20% of the time I'm out visiting new companies. Um, that's the only question I'm trying to answer is what is the magic in this company that will allow it to win over long periods of time? What's your advantage? And I'll talk to the CEO for, you know, sometimes an hour or more about what is it that you do that's going to withstand the test of time and manifest in terms of great economics, long-term uh, ability to hold on to your winning position that will allow you to scale. And then I move on to the other two aspects that are critical to being a good investor. The second one is the most important by far. Uh, and that's now that you've found a great company with an advantage, at what price is it worth owning? Because there, there are two things about investments that you have to get right. One, I don't care what you call yourself. I don't care if you call yourself a growth investor, a value investor, a small cap investor or a large cap investor. I don't care what the label is. Every great investment ever made started with the same thing. And that is buying something for less than it's worth. You cannot be a good investor paying too much for something, even if it's a good business. And so you have to be able to figure out what something is worth. And, and in doing that, it's got to leave room for things to go wrong. It's got to leave room for the competitive landscape to change. It's got to leave room for the world to change. It's got to leave room for management to make decisions, some of which are good and some of which aren't so good. And so you have to have the right way to value a business that will withstand, you know, all that change. And, and there's a key to valuing businesses that, you know, again, this is something that I draw a little bit from my engineering career. You have to do two things in valuation. You have to value business reality, which means you have to know where to find business reality. And two, you've got to take market sentiment and market emotion out of your valuation. Nothing makes me angrier than an analyst who publishes a report and says something like this. Well, the market PE is 20, uh, but this company outgrows the market and therefore its PE should be 22. It's currently trading at 18 times. And so when 18 goes to 22, you'll make a lot of money. And then the market PE goes to 15. And that same analyst will come along and say, well, the market PE is 15 and this PE is 13, but it should be 17, right? And so I've just lost 25% of my money and the analyst is giving me the same argument, which is again, based on the market's PE. Mm. Well, the market's PE has sentiment in it. It's got emotion in it. Sometimes the market is really, really happy. And sometimes the market's really, really sad. That's got nothing to do with the business. Um, you cannot base your valuations on sector relative and market relative numbers. You're, you're building in sentiment that will uh, bite you in the end. Finding ways to value a business uh, without sentiment and two, knowing where business reality is. And I learned that in engineering. Business reality is on the cash flow statement. It is not on the income statement. 
what's the third golden rule? The people, you know, as a, as a shareholder in a business, I only get paid one way. And so if I've got a great business that earns great returns and I've paid the right price for it, then it comes down to the people running that business. Are they going to let me benefit from this great business that earns great returns? Or are they going to do things with the money so that shareholders don't benefit? Are they going to make acquisitions and put the money into other things? Are they going to pay themselves too much? You know, I, again, as an, as an outside passive minority shareholder, which most shareholders are, I only get paid if the share price goes up. And so I've got to go in and evaluate the people in the same way that people would evaluate me as a fund manager to see if I know anything about what I'm doing. And I leave a track record for them to do that. Management teams leave a track record too. And so I'll go in and look at everything they've ever done for shareholders. I'll look at their incentive structures. I'll look at the acquisitions they make. They, they buy something, they pay something. I can evaluate whether or not they're allocating capital appropriately. They buy back stock. I can look at when they buy back stock. Do they buy back stock when it's expensive or when it's cheap? Doesn't sound like much, but it makes a difference to shareholders. Uh, and so I'll know very quickly if that management team is working for shareholders or if they're working for themselves. I have no trouble with a management team getting rich as long as my shareholders get rich alongside them. Have you recently found a, um, uh, from this golden rule uh, of three, um, a business that, um, that was worth investing in, that w- where man- management teams were working for shareholders as well as themselves? Yeah, I find it all the time. I find both all the time. You know, one of the things, one of the keys to being a good portfolio manager, there's a something of a of a scout element to it. The motto of the scouts uh, from when I was a kid is be prepared. And so, you know, basically you spend all your time being prepared to act with conviction, knowing what businesses you want to own, knowing what they're worth so that you can act quickly when you get that price and then waiting for the market to give you an opportunity or to provide, you know, to make a mistake in effect. And back in March, the market made many, many big mistakes that I was able to capitalize on and pick up some businesses that I'll own for the next five to 10 years. Um, several of those, one of those was a business I've known for 20 years, uh, Illumina. If you're doing any work in, in R and D and, you know, diagnostic testing, you're touching Illumina's business, whether you like it or not. Illumina was trading, uh, for a brief moment there at about $195 a share. It's now 376. Um, that's a business I've known since the founder, uh, I met the founder in 2003, sitting on a banker's box in the parking lot as he was moving into an office space in San Diego. And he, he told me what advantage he had. He told me how he was going to beat the incumbent and why. And he told me in very detailed terms how it was going to play out. And I knew he was correct. 
and pretty much everything he told me in 2003 has come true. Uh, and you know, there is no way you, if you're doing R and D work in diagnostics and testing that you aren't in some way a customer of Illumina. Uh, it's a fantastic business. I can own this business for a number of years and I was able to pick it up at a wonderful price, partly because the market made a mistake, but partly because I was ready to act in case the market did make a mistake. Looking at a portfolio construction um, and, and harmonizing different holdings, has your dexterity as a musician help you build portfolios? Is there, is there, I, I don't know, there, there must be obvious qualities to a musician that you might have brought to your profession, whether it's being in sync, the ability to listen, you know. Well, it's it might funny. be stretching it, but I, I don't think so. No, I've, you know, this is something I've never been asked before, but, but I think about, so when you're sitting around practicing as a musician, there are things that you will do in practice that you would never attempt on stage because they're not quite stage ready. Um, you know, there, there are things I can play when I'm sitting down by, my, by myself that are technically very difficult, but, but under the pressure of being on stage live where you don't have a safety net and you don't get to stop and go back and do it over. That's more like what running a fund is. You don't get to stop and go back and do it over. This is live. Uh, your successes count. They subtract your mistakes and that's the result. There is no, oh wait, let's back up. I want to run through that section again. Um, and so, you know, I said there are three things that I have to get right. Those three questions that we talked about. There's one more thing you have to do well as a fund manager to be relevant to your clients and to, and to help customers get, get, their, get where they're trying to go. And that is portfolio construction. And portfolio construction is one of those things, as I said, you, you don't get to back up and do it over. And so you have to have a bias for quality at the top. Uh, particularly like me, if you're going to run a more concentrated global fund, and, and I am a global fund, I can buy anything anywhere in the world. Um, you can't afford to have one of your larger positions take you down. And so you've got to be extremely risk aware. You've got to know what risk is. You've got to know what it looks like. And you've got to defend against the risk of, of being wrong, as any portfolio manager does. And so for me, I have a bias for quality at the top. And that dexterity is directly applicable to almost everything else in, in my life. As I said, there are things you'll do when you're just playing around, but when it's live and when it's real, you've got to take a more conservative uh, path. And, you know, portfolio construction is really an art. It's a wonderful risk management tool. You know, there's a difference between having a position that's 50 basis points and having a position that's 5%. And so, you know, if, if, I feel like a position has a little more risk in it than some other things. I can make the position size smaller and fit it into a fund that way. But, you know, portfolio construction, as I said, is an art. 
anyone can put together a fund that won't go down. The problem is that fund won't go up. And anyone can put together a fund that'll go up a lot. The problem is that fund can go down a lot. The real key is to put together a fund to balance risk and reward with each individual position in a way so that the fund can go up, but gives you some downside protection as well. Because that's how you help people get where they're trying to go financially. And at the end of the day, that's, that's job number one. You, can't, you can never forget that people have come to you because they don't have enough money. And given my background, that's something I take uh, very personally. It's proving to be working for you since, as I've mentioned before, you've been AAA rated since the spring by CityWire. Um, and the Invesco Global Focus Fund has outperformed its sector average over the last three years by, I think, 49.1%. I also wanted to tackle transformation because from a wider perspective, it seems that your career embodies transformation, not just as in an evolution within one same field, but really transformation across disciplines as a process by which you sorely and, and dynamically reinvent yourself. How crucial would you say it is um, for a portfolio manager to continue and reinvent themselves throughout their career? I think if you don't do that, you will have a very short career. I, um, my experience with the world, n not just with myself, but, but with the world around me, is that change truly is constant. Um, it comes, change comes in a lot of forms. And so you, you have to learn to recognize what change is and, and what it's going to mean to the rest of the world. Because it's, it's, it's not like change happens in a vacuum. Uh, Amazon comes up and does what it does, and that affects some existing players. You know, Facebook comes up and does what it does, and that affects some people that, you know, it's taking away from somebody. And you need to understand uh, who's you know, affected. And, and you also need to understand what are they going to do about it? People don't just lay down and take it. They respond, they react, they reorganize. And so I've always looked at this as a lifelong learning exercise. Um, I've been reading as most of my colleagues have five, six hours a day for 20 years. And I was reading long before I showed up in asset management. It's got to be who you are. It's not something, I don't think you show up in asset management and just decide at that point for the first time in your life, I'm going to learn. I think it's part of who you are. And so to be good at this, you have to be someone who is willing and able and enjoys lifelong learning. Uh, and if you don't, as I said, you'll become very stagnant and your career will be a lot shorter than it could be. Also, as part of reinventing oneself, um, you mentioned mentorship and how you'd been influenced by incredible mentors throughout your career. I, I was wondering what, what's the top tip you would give to someone who has either just entered the, the asset management industry or who is seeking to re reinvent themselves, what would you say? Uh, well, one of the keys for me has been, you know, as, 
silly as it sounds, I was never afraid to look like an idiot. Um, I think one of the things to, to really learn from other people, you have to have your ego in the right place. You have to be willing to accept that there are people who know more. There are people who can help you and you have to be open to that. The only way someone can help you is if they can see what you don't know and, and therefore figure out how to help you, where to help you. And so I was never afraid to raise my hand and say, I don't understand what you're talking about, or I don't know that word, or I don't know, you know, what this concept is. And that allowed me to learn a lot faster, I think, than average. Of course, I probably, you know, didn't look very bright or very capable along the way at times, but that's a necessary trait. One of the things I see in a lot of successful portfolio managers is that they don't show up feeling like they know everything they need to know. They show up willing to raise their hand and let you see what they don't know. And then, you know, six months later, they do know and they move on to the next gap. Um, and so I was able to learn very quickly, take, you know, some of the things that I already knew from my other life as an engineer and assimilate that. And so, my, you know, my top tip would be twofold for young people. Uh, one is don't spend a lot of time looking at what other people are doing. I, it, it's an easy way to lose your confidence and confidence is one of the most critical things in this business. If I could build a wall around something and protect one thing so that nothing could ever take it, it would be a young person's confidence. And the second thing would be, you know, be willing, you have to be willing to look like you don't know much so that you can know a lot. You have to build a knowledge base over 10 years and to do that, you just have to be willing to dig in, to accept that you don't know what you need to know, and then do something about it. That is great. Thank you. Thanks again, Randy, for joining and sharing what you've learned throughout your multifaceted career. I'm looking forward to seeing what is next, because I'm sure there are many upcoming constructive changes in the works. So thank you again for joining. Thanks for having me, Victoire. And dear listeners, thank you for listening. If you want to find out more inspiring profiles of multi-dimensional asset managers, you can go check out the rest of the Breaking and Entering series on the CityWire Selector podcast that is available on Spotify. Bye for now.